Hi, I'm Varun Haran. I'm senior editor with Information Security Media Group. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Jonathan Kerr, who is research director with Analyst from Gartner. And we're going to be discussing fraud analytics and how fraud is being fought with the help of AI and ML and what role blockchain supports to play in this space. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Jonathan, what does the fraud space look like right now with the advent of AI and ML? What are some of the innovative use cases for fighting fraud using machine learning? Well, some interesting things happening. We're seeing that the market is quite crowded. There's a number of players, and we're seeing some exciting innovations in there, particularly seeing some vendors trialing solutions using unsupervised machine learning. So, of course, that gets the advantage of getting away from the data labeling, classification, and so on. Most supervised systems are quite the challenge really is that all of these systems are quite dependent on the quality, depth and variety of data that they're able to be provided by the end users. And so what we're seeing is that the end users are demanding the longer you know, proof of concept times um, to work with these systems. But I think what we're also seeing is that there is a growing move to try and, if you like, use data of so detected fraudsters across a variety of the customer bases. So rather than saying, well, you have a fraud system that is just in place for Bangay, um, you know, detected fraud patterns are then if you like, applied. So it's kind of a uh, an, almost an inoculation effect. Um, now clearly that's got a couple of problems in that um, there are you know, privacy regulations, obviously GDPR in Europe and indeed in the USA. But what we're seeing is that the vendors are responding to this and uh, typically what we're seeing now is that instead of actually sharing, if you like, whole identities across different customer bases, they're sharing, if you like, a you know the signature of the fraud attack. Sure. And um, so you still get the inoculation effect. That's a, that's certainly something that we're seeing is exciting. And um, and I think that going along with that, we are seeing a uh, increased uh, appetite in the end user organisations to be using fraud detection and prevention as a service rather than as a like a software product. Okay. So you know, let's get specific a little bit. Let's get a little deeper into how analytics has evolved in the fraud space, really. Okay. Well, I think um, it's interesting, really, because, of course, if you go back to um, even the very early days, analytics, transaction analysis was always part of the fraud detection arsenal. And so, you know, you'd look for unusual patterns in credit card payment systems and so on. And that's something that's been with us, really, since, you know, the 70s and 80s. So that's uh, very well established and very mature technology. And what we're seeing in an effort to kind of make fraud detection as real time as possible, we're actually looking at some non-transactional attributes. So for example, we'll look at um, not just as a transaction patterns and transaction types and all that kind of you know very useful and valuable information, but we're looking at you know say behavioral gestures. So the way that you and I interact with our mobile devices, our gesture patterns are very different. And the way that um, you know use a mouse or a keyboard typing cadences again different from the way that I would and of course um, fraud detection systems can then use this to identify as a known good customer a known fraudster 
Or, of course, they can say, well, actually, this is an individual we don't know that much about. And so then we can trigger off additional step of authentications, perhaps a mobile push, you know, going into the identity enrollment phase again. There's a variety of different phases. And so what's happening, I think, is that these fraud systems have moved away from being this kind of, if like, the back office system, and they're really now front and centre and governing that user experience. Right, more real-time than Very real much so, yeah. after the fact. Right. You know, you mentioned unsupervised machine learning a little while back. And what advantage do you think unsupervised systems, unsupervised machine learning systems have over the traditional analytics? Well, I think the major advantage is, as I say, where you have data which has not been subject to that kind of rigorous cleaning, classification and labeling process um, for whatever reason. Maybe it's just you know, the, the amount of data coming in so far is too fast, um, whatever the reason is. And an unsupervised system gives you that opportunity to do some analytics on that data. Now, what you will typically get out, or what I've seen typically come out of these uh, unsupervised systems is you will get you know a graph showing you clusters and outliers both of which of course are of interest but of course you then you may miss of course is saying well actually these are what these clusters and outliers actually represent and so you have to then you know there's a usually a need for a like some human investigation a little bit of triage and uh, digging to you know, discover what's going on there but I think to get that kind of first take and say actually there's some aberrant patterns here that you know, we think are you know worthy of further investigation. That seems to be where I'm seeing unsupervised machine learning being used. And then what about things like cross-channel fraud? Because a lot of that is happening while well, cyber vector is uh, you know used, but at the same time, other fraud techniques that are traditional, more traditional, are also being brought into play. So they all work as a combination for the fraudster to you know take out, yeah. carry out the attack. Uh, how do you break down those silos between different functions, different departments, different parts of the organization? There is no doubt that it is challenging to break down those silos. And I've seen you know, concerns from government departments who say, well, you know, we'll have to have a brand new overarching department team looking after fraud. And two banks who say, well, actually, we've got a new channel. It's very dynamic. It's a bit of a tiger team. We don't really want them to be you know, having to match pace with other channels. So there's lots of different reasons. But the reality is that if you have different channels, Channels, different silo channels with different fraud strategies. We are giving weapons to those fraudsters. And so it is really important. It's something that you know I emphasize in my research and the Gartt field is very important to have that holistic cross-channel view of customer activity. Okay. So let's switch gears a bit here. Let's move on to blockchain. What are some of the problem areas in security and fraud that blockchain technologies can potentially be applied? One of the interesting things and uh, that I'm seeing blockchain being used for is where you have a consortium of concerned parties, which could be insurance companies, loan organizers, other kind of banking financial services. And the blockchain in that case is being used to say, well, actually, we have seen this you know, bad transaction. And in the interests of preserving the financial ecosystem, if you like, you know, there's a growing recognition that we're no longer in that space where we can you know, say, well, it's a competitive issue and if someone else gets thrown under the bus, then I don't mind. It's a case of actually fraud is something that harms an industry in general. Right. So, you know, for example, fraud in car insurance. 
you know, that hurts all of us because in the end we all pay more in our car insurance premiums to cover the cost of fraud. And I think that the use of blockchain to share information between these you know, interested and concerned parties, the different insurance company or financial service company, I think is actually something that's quite powerful. And the other use we're seeing as well is in a similar area. We're trying to combat financial crimes. Banks are starting to use blockchain to share information there. And so, again, it's lowering the boom on the financial criminals who try and evade and you know, pick their way through the financial system. The more information is shared, the harder it is for them to do that. And I think the third area, which is still nascent, but is, again is interesting, is related to that. It's the, you know, the know your customer. Now, we're all very familiar with when we enroll, you know, we either have to take our paper documents down to the office of whatever organization we're doing business with, or for that matter the next step on is to you know show them in front of a camera and that's fine as far as it goes but what we're starting to see is quite an exciting initiative because by again using blockchain to say well actually we we have proved the identity of this customer we know this is Jonathan Gare and then we've got the opportunity to share data um, across the you know, uh, again and share um, with the consent of the customer. You know, if you if you consent to this, then your data is shared across the members of the consortium, and the result of this, of course, is a slicker user experience for the customer. I mean, we're not going to be you know waving our passports in front of webcams quite soon. So, what are some common misunderstandings and myths? security practitioners have regarding blockchain? What are some common risks that emanate from these kind of blockchain implementations and you know, proof of concepts that are going on right now? Well, I think one of the things I feel is um, very important is that the if like the nuts and bolts of information security is still important. Um, it's still important to secure the nodes of the blockchain. It's still important to make sure that if you are dealing with a cryptocurrency, so a coin-based blockchain system, that you secure the wallets, which essentially is an exercise in crypto cryptographic key management um, and that is you know something that remains with us and that is something certainly that if you like cannot be ignored in the the bold new world of blockchain i think also what's important to realize is that when we commit information to the blockchain it is there for the life of that blockchain and so it's very important that we consider the privacy implications very important obviously that we consider the participation there have been concerns raised about undesirable material on the public the bitcoin box so i think that certainly something to look for but I think the uh, I think the key concerns that I'm seeing are actually the ones again raised around privacy around GDPR and as I say how do you make sure that one preserves things like the right to be you've got how do you make sure that I as a data subject have the right to correct my record even request it deleted so obviously that is difficult given the immutable nature of the blockchain technology right. Right. So do you think, I mean, as a corollary to what we've just discussed, do you think that there is a, a need there for some kind of a repudiation mechanism when it comes to right to forget? Or maybe it is that not all data is appropriate for blockchain. Some needs to be uh, stored in other ways. I think we've seen a number of solutions there. And I think what we see is that there's a combination of solutions. One is, as you say, is that you use the blockchain for what it is, a ledger. And so in that ledger, you record the checksums of the transactions. The actual data perhaps is stored in traditional data storage technology that we all know and understand very well. And of course, the benefit of that is that there is a, given the current state of the art in blockchain, there is a, a speed and scale benefit in having 
obviously smaller data sizes in the in a blockchain uh, um, node like I think that the other side of the equation is that if you have say what uh, we're seeing vendors such as datapassports.com who are trying to integrate the um, permissioning and indeed as you say the uh, repudiation permission most importantly into the block structure itself uh, I think again that um, does pose some very exciting opportunities for consortium based information sharing that I was talking about earlier Oh, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks so much for your insight. Oh, thank you very much. So that was Jonathan Kerr, who's Research Director with Gartner. For ISMG, this is Varun Haran. Thanks for listening.